thank you for coming. Um, I'll just start with a confession. Um, you know, I like to read detective stories, and I try to call that work. So this is the product of that attempt. Um, so I read them um, uh, in my defense, not as a literary critic, but as a historian. Um, um, basically, when I read fiction, crime fiction, I, I try to focus on the dialogue between fiction and reality in a specific place and time, rather than looking at Mexican authors in relation to the genre or uh, more uh, broader literary questions. No? At the center of that dialogue between fiction and reality um, in Mexico is the link between justice and the truth about a crime. Uh, I propose that we can read crime fiction in Mexico as a sarcastic commentary on justice, justice, one in which detective and murderer are not morally different, and resolution often comes in the form of a new crime. So I will talk about a few authors, mainly um, Rafael Bernal, who wrote crime fiction uh, between the 1940s and the 1960s in Mexico. Um, and I will try to show how there was you know, a process of evolution, but basically to um, highlight that there is a, a considerable and interesting uh, literature on crime uh, by fiction writers in Mexico at the time. The reading of um, you know, narrative, fiction narrative as a source for historical or social history you know, it's, uh, it's well established. In the case of Mexico, though, what people have used mostly have been um, 19th century novel mm, as a document of class relations, of uh, banditry, of, um, of the, the, the formation of a national identity. And the key for those academic readings of fiction, of mainly 19th century fiction, the key was nationalism. And that's the way in which people try to understand the value and the meaning of, of, the, of the novels that were being written in Mexico since the 19th century. Los Bandidos del Rio Frio, you know, and other, you know, some, a canon of... of, of and, and, and that was also applied to the novel of the Mexican Revolution. No? And there are people like Fernando Fabio Sanchez, uh, in a book called Artful Assassins, who is also proposing to apply that key to crime fiction is crime fiction, he says, is a way to understand the creation of the state, the creation of uh, in the 20th century in Mexico. No? Most people who have written about crime fiction in Mexico during this period uh, in Mexico, they say it's not good, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's entertainment, but it's very amateur, uh, it's derivative, it's not really original, until the 1970s, when we have a, there is a new generation of fiction writers that for scholars like Monsi Weiss and, and, and Persephone Ibrahim, they do amount to something in terms of uh, you know, literature. No? I don't agree with any of that, um, as you will see, but for a moment I would say that the, the use of nationalism to understand crime fiction is misleading, at least this crime fiction. Um, one reason is because in Mexico, crime fiction revealed the inability of the state to organize and nationalize reality. This is, you know, these words are from Luke Bolstansky, who has written about, uh, fic, um, you know, detective and espionage uh, fiction. Um, that is, the state is expected to provide a logical and normative framework for the events of the world. Uh, a framework that in crime fiction is challenged hmm, by a crime and then is restored by detection. Hmm? Um, instead, in Mexico, the success of the detective often means the failure of the police. Um, the second reason, and I will illustrate this point uh, later, no? the second reason not to read crime fiction from the perspective of nationalism is that the U.S., the United States, and to lesser degree other countries, played a very important role in the development of this literature. Not only providing models, obviously everyone read Agatha Christie and, and, and Sherlock Holmes, and, but also, as we will see, providing the setting for many stories written by Mexicans you know, that happened in the U.S. Providing this concern 
that apply very well in Mexico about, you know, this modern life that was changing in the cities, you know, how to deal with it. That's something that is shared, and we shouldn't uh, think that uh, um, is nationalist, uh, the way in which Mexicans used it. The opposite, I would say. Um, they were exploring a cosmopolitan world, you know, if, if anything. No? Um, the most important reference to understand this uh, crime fiction in Mexico, beginning in the 1940s, is the uh, crime news, which you know I've, I've written about. You know the, what in Mexico is called the Nota Roja, no? Newspapers that since the 1920s were very popular, uh, mainly covering crime news. Uh, with good use of graphic, you know, resources and narrative resources. No? They, uh, for many readers, uh, and these were the most popular newspapers since the 20s to the present, no? uh, many readers thought that those newspapers really painted uh, a picture of reality that was accurate. What it really meant to live in the city is what you could see on the first page and the crime pages of the newspapers. Um, there was something that was real about those newspapers that the mainstream newspapers didn't have. Because, you know, m most newspapers in Mexico during the 20th century had a very, you know, uh, limited political um, um, agenda. In other words, they were very close to the government. No? So the popular crime news newspapers were very uh, influential, not only among working class or uh, people. Uh, everyone read them. Um, and these newspapers were also very interesting because they, they uh, engaged readers in a way that other newspapers didn't. They received and published letters, they did polls, and they always documented the way in which the public was interested in a crime. You know? They created the, the interest in a crime, obviously. There was always one crime uh, every day that people cared about and sometimes followed for several weeks. You know? But they also, these newspapers, documented how people really wanted to uh, be part of the resolution of the crime, sometimes calling for the death penalty, sometimes calling for lynching of the suspects. But you can see in these newspapers a lot of interaction between the, the, the press itself and the public. No? Um, however, crime fiction is where the social views be, uh, about the gap between crime and punishment that define Mexican reality, impunity, no? that's where we can see uh, that gap taken to its logical consequences. This has to happen in f crime fiction, not in the newspapers, because the newspapers in many ways are so connected to the police and the judiciary that they cannot really take uh, some of these ideas about, you know, punishment, about lynching to their extreme. I mean, they have to maintain a collaboration with the police. They cannot write, for example, that, all, you know, that the police is not very efficient and that the police is torturing people. You don't see that often uh, in the newspapers. Whereas in crime fiction, that's documented very clearly because the, the, the writers don't have any problem about doing that. Um, in any case, what defines this crime fiction uh, is first one of the main features. It's its ab ability to, 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 to show how the state was unable to guarantee either truth or justice, um, and therefore creating a path for other people outside the state to intervene in this process of finding the truth. And the readers accepted this gambit. Um, crime fiction, including detective stories, hard-boiled, and other variations, was quite popular in the 40s in Mexico. There's a large number of novels in cheap editions that were printed, most of them translations from foreign authors, but all of them, most of them, absent from libraries today. Nobody really collected them. They were cheap books that now you can buy some of them in the um, second-hand bookstores of um, in, in downtown Mexico City, but they, they're, they're gone, basically. Uh, um, there were magazines, uh, the most famous Selecciones Policíacas y de Misterio, that was first uh, published in 1946, and it was meant to be a Mexican version of Ellery Queen's Mystery Magazine, which is from 1944, uh, published in New York City. The editor of Selecciones 
uh, Antonio Elu was a writer himself, and he published in Ellery Queen a story, uh, translated, uh, uh, and also had a very good uh, relationship with Frederick Dana, the editor of Ellery Queens. No? Sent him books, you know, uh, sometimes stories, um, and obviously translating and publishing some of the Ellery Queens uh, stories in, in Mexico. No? In 1956, uh, Ventura y Misterio began to be published, and that magazine, um, they were both uh, monthly, uh, only published stories written in Spanish. You know, Ellery Queens translated a lot, uh, I mean, Selecciones, Policiacas translated uh, most of its content, but also published originals in Spanish. Selecciones, uh, Aventura y Misterio from 56, um, had the goal, according to the editors, to uh, achieve in Mexico the popularity and, I quote, artistic dignity that the genre had in other countries, like the U.S. and England. It gave prizes to the best uh, stories, and uh, um, it sold well. We know that Selecciones uh, sold 20,000 copies for two pesos without almost any advertising. So that means that they had a lot of subscribers, and what is meaningful in the case of these uh, magazines, but also the, the books, uh, there were several series of mystery books published during these years with lots of titles, no? also very cheap uh, books, no? is that they didn't have any kind of subsidy from the government, unlike most other genres of literature in Mexico. Uh, um, if you were an author or you know, peasant-related themes, you, know, you would somehow get some support from this, through editions or from, sometimes through jobs. The authors in this genre of mystery or crime did it outside the support of the state. Obviously, because the, the state was not going to subsidize a genre that demonstrated its own uh, inability to solve the problem of crime. Right? Um, the, these narratives were useful for the readers uh, because they show a rapidly changing urban culture. Um, the U.S. seemed to provide a model on how to survive in a capitalist world. Um, but the U.S. novel, as you can see, you know, uh, was also worried about that. Uh, um, the, Mexi the U.S. Uh, writers that were read in Mexico, like Chandler, um, they were, and Kane, writing about the, the hegemony of the market over social relations. They were concerned about the changing uh, gender roles in this new uh, urban life by the contradictions between individualism and nationalism. That's something you can see in the U.S. literature, but also in the in the Mexican. Mm -hmm. uh, so that's why I'm saying that we shouldn't read this only in terms of nationalism. Um, people didn't see themselves as malinchistas because they were interested in crime stories. Malinchismo is the word that is used in Mexico for someone who despises uh, the country and it, uh, favors anything that is foreign. No? That's no, that, I think, didn't happen because reading crime stories was a way to understand Mexico for most of the readers. No? Uh, that's what also Glenn S. Close uh, uh, thinks about Hispanic American literature in general. It was a way to understand the city. Um, Miguel Rodriguez Osano, um, he, he writes about Mexico, the, 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 the genre in Mexico, and he says that it was a way to guide um, readers uh, into a social life uh, that was very difficult sometimes to understand. We have to think that the cities were growing and a lot of people who were moving into the cities, especially Mexico City, were new to this kind of urban life. So Rodriguez Lozano says reading crime stories was useful in that regard. <coughs> Obviously there was also an ethical fascination about reading these things. Um, it has to do with a moral interpretation of the world that we can see in these uh, stories. Um, I always like to cite Oden, the WH Oden, the and he, he said that the detective genre is addictive because homicide gives pleasure and at the same time causes guilt in the reader. No? This guilt, according to Oden, was cleansed when knowledge restored innocence by uncovering the criminal. Or what Boltanski would say when it brings back the logic and moral structure of reality. No? So, this cycle of transgression and restoration of balance allowed readers to consume and quickly forget uh, these novels. 
Um, in Mexico, this cycle was tempered, in my view, by readers' knowledge that the state didn't offer a moral, moral compass. Um, we like to believe that the state is ultimately responsible for to preserve the order of reality, no? using science and punishment. Um, classical detective fiction maintains that premise by narrating investigations that combine observation and logic in a detection plot that eventually reveals the truth, which is always based on reality. There can be no fantastic uh, explanations for or for crimes in the genre. Yet in Mexico, this revelation is reached through what I call a moral plot. This plot is based on the premise that a citizen is radically alone in front of the state. Evidence and judicial criteria of proof are less important than the detective's astute observation of the morality of each character. And obviously, there are institutional reasons for this. The use of violence by uh, state and non-state actors and the practices of the justice system in 20th century Mexico were very different from the countries where the genre first emerged. Uh, um, if you read Edgar Allan Poe, but also Agatha Christie, um, the detective, usually a policeman, not always, um, is the incarnation, the incarnation of reason mm, in the process of detection. And once the murderer is found, the state takes care of it. It's an afterthought. You don't really worry about what happens after the truth is revealed. In Mexico, that's not the case. Hmm? Uh, for the readers of Nota Roja, you couldn't rely on the police to eventually solve the problem. The press and the private intelligence of individuals were more credible. Justice could only come from the smarts of detectives who were otherwise not respectable, from journalists who constantly had to avoid or confront the police, from murderers themselves. So in order to appreciate the originality of Mexican crime fiction, we have to look at uh, its detectives. They were amateurs, for the most part, who used their intelligence to understand crime and the reality that surrounded it. Jose Martinez de la Vega, for example, wrote stories that were parodies of the genre among the national uh, stupidity. Peter Perez was his detective, uh, a Mexican version of Sherlock Holmes, who with the same dear stalker uh, hat and a pipe, but poor, very poor. And he used his untrained intelligence to solve crimes that were themselves parodies. Uh, for example, uh, one case is the cabaret star Mensolele, which is probably a reference to Tongolele, a famous exotic dancer in Mexico. No? She is killed by a student who reads to her the Dante's Divina Commedia during six hours. Another case, a street cop uh, who beat a merchant to death because she did not pay the daily bribe. Or the case, or a case that could not be solved according to Peter Perez because it was too similar to homicidios electorales, electoral murders, which were never solved. You know? Basically saying, you know, there's violence that will never be clarified in Mexico. Um, in fact, you know, all the detectives that we have in crime fiction uh, during these years in Mexico are not professionals. Maximo Roldan is the main character in Antonio Luz's story. He's a thief who, in the first story of the series, is forced to kill somebody. But basically, he remains a thief through the stories that uh, Elu writes. Chucho Cárdenas is the detective in the uh, stories written by Leo Dolmo, an author, well, a name which we don't know uh, who is behind it because it was a pseudonym and has never been clarified, but <coughs> wrote about 200, more than 200 uh, stories, uh, short stories, published every Sunday in La Prensa, uh, 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 Nota Roja uh, newspaper. Chucho Cárdenas, the protagonist, was a journalist a journalist who was very ingenious and very dynamic and, and solved cases uh, without really thinking about the law. He would seduce women, wear disguises, poison dogs, any resource uh, helped to solve a crime. But he didn't use a gun. Um, Chucho Cárdenas, unlike uh, the police, didn't need a gun. There was also another detective, Armando Sosaya. He was a character in stories written by Maria Elvira Bermudez, who was the most important 
female author in the in the genre, and he was more of an intellectual. He liked to read the detective, no, in these stories. He read uh, psychoanalysis. He read uh, crime, uh, you know forensic uh, handbooks. Um, in other stories, we have students who are detectives, um, professors who are detectives, archaeologists. Um, they use. They don't have the resources. They don't have the science. But according to a story by Antonio Peruccio from 1952, the character explains to, uh, to an Italian policeman how Mexican detectives work. Um, I'll read in Spanish and then I'll translate. Usted no sabe lo ladinos que somos los indios por acá. Sabe usted, aquí nos faltan muchas cosas. Aparatos de estos que tienen los norteamericanos para descubrir a los embusteros y el dinero que ellos tienen. Pero disponemos de una máquina que no funciona nada mal. So, um, you don't know how, uh, you know, ingenious we are, the Indians here, um, this character says. Uh, we don't have many things. We don't have these machines to discover the truth that the Americans have. We don't have any money. But we have one thing that works very well. He points to his head. No? Um, in most of these stories, the rival of the detective was the police as much as the criminal. Chucho Cárdenas, the, the journalist detective, had a very complex relationship with Inspector Cifuentes, uh, his counterpart, who was an ill-tempered, obese policeman who arrested any suspect he fancied and, and fumed every time that Chucho exhibited his ineptitude in front of other journalists. In the stories by Martinez de la Vega and Elu that I mentioned earlier, the police were mindlessly following the first clue they stumbled upon. They arrested the innocent, and they let the guilty one escape. So fictional detectives provided a way to explore the strange paths of Mexican justice. Um, basically, the, the stupidity of the police in these stories resided in the fact of their belief that the law could punish crime. El Fistol de la Corbata is a, a story by Elu that was then translated and published in, in Ellery Queens. No? It's a good example. Maximo Roldan, the thief um, um, detective, uncovers a murderer, a girl who had suffered abuse from her stepfather, and he decides to, well, the girl decides to kill her stepfather because he was abusing her. No? Instead of telling the police, Roldan, when he discovers that the girl did it, um, she lets, he lets her escape, uh, not before sharing with her the jewels and money of the victim. Let her go, it was just what she did. Quien Mató a Rafaela is a story by Chucho, with Chucho Cárdenas, where the detective refrains from denouncing the parents of a decent family who paid for the killing of their daughter's seducer. And even the detective arranges for the police to kill the accomplice of the seducer. In another case, Chucho facilitates the death of a blackmailer of three society ladies who had been his lover, his uh, lovers. Chucho, nevertheless, scolds the women. I quote, killing a blackmailer might deserve forgiveness, but giving him reasons for blackmail, that's wrong. Murder, even if illegal, is a form of justice in these stories, um, yet one that the state and the law could not recognize. Um, there are many examples of this, um, but basically what I would say, and this applies also, I think, to, to the views of the detective in, in Chandler and, 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 and um, Hard Boy, the detective was a man of honor. They had to solve the case. It was a commitment with the victim. In the case of Chandler and Hammett, you can see that there is a contract and the detective will fulfill his part in that contract, no matter what. Huh? Even if he gets beaten, even if it's against his own you know, uh, morality. In the case of Mexico, the detectives are men of honor. Uh, they solve the case not because they have to legally, hmm? but mostly because they want to protect or, or, or do something about um, justice. Uh, particularly when it comes to defending the honor of, of uh, women. We have other stories in which the murderer provides the perspective uh, in the narrative. Um, and they also offer, in a very fruitful way, an opportunity for the author to reflect 
about the relationship between crime, justice, and art. The most famous uh, novel is Ensayo de un Crimen uh, by Rodolfo Sigli from 1944. Rigoberto de la Cruz, the main character of, of the novel, plans to kill several people whose morality he finds objectionable. A decadent aristocratic lady, a homosexual man, a prostitute. But his motives are purely aesthetic. Um, so scholars have said that this selection of victims represents the state's project to moralize society. However, if you look at the novel, Rigoberto de la Cruz doesn't kill any of the, his intended victims. He fails. He is not very good at, at killing people. Um, in fact, he only kills his own wife by accident. And she's uh, a, a member of a very decent family. So more than a representation of power, I would argue, the novel by Usigli is a reflection about artistic creation and the injustice of public reputation. The romantic idea of art for its own sake that we could trace in Usigli's references to Thomas de Quincy's uh, murder considered as mm -hmm. one of the fine arts is no longer important for the criminal artist so much as the recognition of the public for his art. The findings of the police and judges are less important than the reports published in the press. De La Cruz, the character, wants to be accused of the crimes he thinks he has committed, so the newspapers will write, out, will write about his intelligence as a criminal. Uh, and we can see that the Nota Roja made some criminals very famous. The newspapers like to publish interviews and pictures of, of famous murderers. Um, confession was the most important document, uh, not only in press coverage, but also in the investigations of the police in Mexico throughout the 20th century. A confession was enough to indict and convict a person until recently. And in many cases, confessions were obtained through torture, which was a very common practice in, in police stations. No? Another writer who exemplifies these fantasies about the murderer as an author is Juan Bustillo Oro. He was mostly famous for the films he directed in the golden age of Mexican cinema, but he also write, wrote a few stories in the 1950s when he was in an idle period where he couldn't produce his own um, uh, movies because um, you know Jenkins and Avila Camacho's brother, they were monopolizing uh, not only the exhibition of movies, but also the credit. They were forcing producers to give them money. So uh, Bustillo Oro said, you know, I'm not going to do movies for now. So he wrote some detective stories. No? In one of them, El Asesino de los Gatos, The Murderer of Cats, the criminal explains how he allowed a horrible accident to happen to his boss, an evil man who liked to kill cats. There's no prosecution against the narrator, a narrator, but it's him, the criminal, who dispenses justice. In Como Murió Charles Prague, uh, how the, the death of Charles Prague, by also Bustillo Oro, uh, the theme of justice is developed um, as a form of artistic creation. It's a very interesting story. It's set in 1920s Hollywood. Lee Smith is the main character of the story. He's a character actor who is tired of always playing the role of the defeated villain in, in the stories. No? So he poisons the hero of the movie he's working on, Charles Prague. Prague dies in agony while the camera is rolling. The director of the movie uses the footage in the movie because he knows that that's going to attract more viewers to the movie. It's going to be a commercial success. Um, but he has to change the ending of the story to make Lee Smith, the villain, the winner at the end. So Smith achieves what he had tried to do many times with scripts, that he will be the, the, the eventual uh, hero of the movie. In a way, that's a recognition that he's a better actor than Charles Prague, obviously. But nobody really knows who killed Charles Prague until... Lee Smith goes with the producer of the movie and confesses, um, in part out of pride. Hmm? It's a perfect crime, and I'm a talented actor. The producer of the movie calls the police and accuses Lee Smith 
because he knows that the scandal is going to bring even more people to the theaters to, to watch the movie. And Lee Smith says, okay, let's bring it on. I want to play my last role as the murderer in a trial and, and be sentenced to death. He sees that as, you know, confirmation of his art. No? The transformation of the detective into a murderer and the critique of the national infamy of uh, impunity are best presented, in my view, in the work of Rafael Bernal. Um, his production spanned three decades as, a, as an author of uh, crime fiction. Um, from the golden age of the genre, from the 40s into the 60s. Uh, but he was a very marginal figure in Mexican literature. Um, um, he even lived outside Mexico most of uh, this period. Um, he's well known for El Complot Mongol, a novel from 1969, um, that many scholars agree is probably is one of the best. Uh, and the first noir movie, um, uh, novel in, in the Mexican uh, uh, um, uh, genre. People like Rodrigo Lozano say, El complot, um, uh, El complot Mongol is the first neopolisiaco, which is the, the way in which people kind of label the genre since the 1970s, no? when it became more popular in Mexico. No? I would say that we have to read Bernal the other way. We have to read his first stories in order to understand El Complot Mongol from 1969. Um, he started writing detective fiction in the mid-40s. Uh, and, and we can see how he transformed his own writing, but also the genre was changing. Bernal, like Usigli, Elu, and Bustillo Oro, came of age politically in the opposition to the post-revolutionary uh, regime. Some of these authors were Vasconcelistas in 1929, uh, campaigning for Jose Vasconcelos. Some of them uh, were sympathetic to the Cristeros, the Catholic uh, opposition against the regime, and in the case of Bernal, they were very close or even involved with the sinarchistas. Uh, later on, again, opposition from the right to the government. In fact, Bernal spent a few months in prison for that. However, Bernal was part of a member of a very prestigious family. They had haciendas, and uh, his um, <clears throat> um, um, there were several illustrious historians in the family. His brother was Ignacio Bernal, uh, who excavated Montalban Monte in Oaxaca. And so Rafael uh, basically worked as a journalist. Uh, he wrote scripts for movies and TVs, and he traveled a lot. And the you know, second part of his life, he basically worked for the diplomatic service for, uh, in different embassies, uh, working for Mexico. No? Uh, but his work is not well known. I mean, he wasn't as famous. For example, Usigli, who wrote Ensayo de un Crimen, he was very famous as a playwright hmm? because other you know, uh, stories. He wasn't famous as a detective uh, author. Bernal wasn't really very popular. No? Uh, in fact, El Complot Mongol was published in 69 and wasn't read very much until the 80s when it was reprinted in a popular edition and people really realized that how important the, the novel uh, was. No? Um, however, the people who started reading El Complot Mongol in the 80s and 90s said, well, this, this, this novel is very good, but it's very xenophobic, it's very reactionary, it's sexist, it's bad, bad. No? Obviously, you have to understand how Bernal was writing uh, uh, in order to understand the tone in, in, the, in the novel. No? Uh, but there's something that a lot of people miss when they read El Complot Mongol, which is uh, a religious component in Bernal's work, not only in El Complot Mongol from 69, but in his previous uh, stories. Uh, and that Catholic perspective is very different from the neopolisiaco authors that came later in the 70s, who were mostly, you know, leftists, like Paco Ignacio Taibo II, right? They had another ideological agenda. Bernal was a Catholic, and, he, and you can see that very clearly in his uh, stories. Let me, let me mention very briefly um, some of the first stories that he wrote. Um, um, in 47, he wrote uh, Un Muerto en la Tumba and Tres Novelas Policiales. Um, and they're like satirical in a way, they contain some philosophical commentary. Um, 
they have some, you know, funny anecdotes like this poet who, in La Muerte Poetica story, a poet who is writing an ode and calling for death to come, uh, and then he's killed accidentally by somebody who's trying to kill uh, the guy sitting next to him, you know, a cacique, you know. Uh, there are corrupt bureaucrats, pretentious writers, inept policemen in these uh, early stories. Um, El Heroico Don Serafin is a story uh, uh, set in the midst of petty politics in a public university in a small city in Mexico, and the president of the university is murdered. He's an overrated philosopher, according to, to Bernal, uh, in the middle of a student protest. No? The detective in these stories is Teodulo Batanes, uh, an archaeologist, comically absent-minded, short-sighted, shy, sucking his thumb. He's more interested in science uh, than in the crimes that happen around him. He uses intuition to select the meaningful clues out of small details, a pin that falls in his hand. Uh, a minor observation in the last page of a victim's prayer book. In one story, he's sitting in a park bench, and the murderer comes and starts talking to him, and then Batanes solves the case as he walks with the murderer to the police station. He's really not looking for these cases. He doesn't have very good relations with the police. The police cannot really understand the guy. He, he keeps using these uh, strange synonyms to say the same thing. Um, uh, and justice in these stories always comes in strange ways. Um, Muerte en la tumba centers on, on the death of a senator at the ruins of Monte Albán. Batanes teams up with the local cacique, the local strongman, who wants revenge for his brother's death. And the culprit that Batanes uh, uncovers is indeed killed by the cacique's gunmen. The detection plot, however, this procedure to find the truth, is less important for Batanes than the moral plot. Um, there's something philosophical. For example, in The Muerte Natural, Batanes says that God put evidence in my hands. Um, in uh, La Muerte Madrugadora, he uses the prayer book to understand you know, the page in which the victim was uh, when he was killed, and that leads to the solution of the case. Uh, but basically, Bernal believed, and he cites Chesterton in this, uh, that the most you, the, I cite, you know, Bernal citing Chesterton, the most practical and important thing one can know about a man is his point of view about the universe. That's what you have to learn in order to solve a mystery, what the murderer thinks about the world. No? So, uh, in the strange, well, El Extraño Caso de Aloysius Hans is a story, the strange case of Aloysius Hans from 1946. The detective is not Batanes, but is uh, named Robert, Rupert Brown, no? obviously an allusion to, uh, to Chesterton's uh, Father Brown. Uh, in, this is a very interesting case, also uh, a story, also set in a small town in the U.S., not in Mexico. A series of homicides take place. Brown comes uh, to try to solve it. He speaks with all the locals. He becomes friends with this guy, Hans, who is an avid reader of detective novels. Hans admires the genius of some criminals and enjoys, quote, the problems that force one to think methodically. Brown, the detective, however, does not believe in the superior intelligence of murderers. Um, and he tells Hans, those cases happen in novels, my dear Hans, but not in reality. You have to understand that between Edgar Poe, Conan Doyle, Agatha Christie, and others, and a true murder, there is a great difference, as much as between a movie star and his photograph. It's interesting. The novels, the famous novelists, are the model, and the murders are the reflection of the model, instead of the other way around, right? Um, yet Brown cannot solve the case, and he's about to leave town in frustration. <coughs> then Hans stops him and presents to him a theory of murder as a form of art, with references, again, to the Quincy. Hans explains that he had considered being a detective, but his physique was not adequate. Neither was he good to write murder novels. He had no choice, then, but to commit a murder with aesthetic value. 
To Brown's surprise, he confesses to the crimes and describes their execution. Hans knows that they are finely crafted, uh, but wishes to confess because he wants to preserve the myth of the perfect crime, of the impossibility of the perfect crime. No? It's a famously said, it's not possible to commit a perfect crime. So Hans thinks that people should believe that myth because otherwise people would commit murder more often. However, Hans tells Brown that he won't be able to accuse him in front of the police because it's, he did it in such a perfect way that there is no evidence. So what Brown does is, um, since he cannot accuse um, Hans, he accuses someone else, an innocent man. So Hans is really outraged by the uh, ineptitude of the police and goes out and confesses. Um, then he's tried and the jury acquits him because of reason of insanity. So Hans commits suicide and leaves a letter saying, like Cervantes, Shakespeare and Beethoven, I die misunderstood. Posterity will redeem my memory. So there are many parallels with Ensayo de un Crimen um, and with Como murió Charles Prague. Right? Uh, they feature criminals who believe themselves to be artists, whose crimes have aesthetic value and who seek public recognition. Um, in the case of Aloysius Hahn, the detective Brown finally solves the case, and he's really the hero. So if we read the Complot Mongol, Bernal's novel from 1969, um, we, can, we can take some of these ideas and, and project them into a, a book that had a very different tone. It wasn't a detective story. It was more of a murder. Uh, some people say it was more of an espionage novel. It was not really... Uh, a, 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 I mean, the, there is an important component of international intrigue, but it's basically a detective story. Uh, the protagonist is Filiberto Garcia, an aging pistolero, a gunman, bodyguard, uh, whose inner feelings are as important as the external events that happen to move the, the story forward. Garcia is commissioned by El Coronel, his boss, to investigate and take care of a supposed Chinese conspiracy to kill the U.S. president while he is visiting Mexico. Murders begin to happen, some of them in the hands of Garcia, while a Cold War intrigue plays out in the most sordid spaces of Mexico City. Yet, yet among the dead, there's one too many, according to Garcia, that of the woman he loves, Martita, a Chinese immigrant. Um, so what happens is that Garcia, the protagonist, begins as a, this kind of pistolero working for, you know, a government agent uh, and becomes a detective uh, because he has to solve the problem or the question of who killed Martita. Uh, um, Garcia really doesn't care about the Cold War. He doesn't care about uh, communism. When he's ordered to kill somebody, he will kill somebody. Um, when he's ordered to investigate this, com this plot, he will do it. Um, but he only looks at his own interests and his questions. No? So the, mo the, 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 the story, the novel, contains a lot of the paranoia that really characterizes the Mexican regime in the 1960s. No? This idea that you know, the government was spying everyone including its own agents. We have now evidence of that, you know, uh, from um, uh, government uh, archives. Um, what is very interesting here is that, and also a change from the earlier uh, crime fiction, is that the violence is in the hands of the protagonist as a pistolero, as this gunman who embodies the authoritarian rule and violent rule of, of, of uh, the regime. Um, he says, Garcia, the protagonist, he's not as good as the Russians or the Americans no? um, who have this technological superiority. He says, we are amateurs, but we know how to kill. Um, so here we have a pessimistic outlook. You know? At the beginning, you have in Bernal and other authors this idea that murder could be something that redeemed itself as an aesthetic... Um, act, or as a way of justice, you know, 
as in the case of the novels by Dolmo and Elu, no? murder could be justified. In El Complot Mongol, that's different. There's something that is not so, I would say, that there's no redemption, apparently, for the murders that Garcia, the protagonist, is committing. One would see, say that it's not possible, really, to be a detective in this paranoid world. Garcia is an isolated man. Uh, he doesn't share his feelings. He, he likes to play poker with Chinese immigrants because he doesn't understand what they're saying. And he feels that, you know, I trust these guys. They don't speak. You know, I don't speak to them, but we play poker. You know? um, he likes Martita. He loves Martita because she's isolated. She depends on him. She's an immigrant and doesn't have papers, so uh, she was really depending on him. The last line of the novel summarizes the detective's predicament and setting. In the wake he improvises for Martita's body, he exclaims, pinche soledad, lousy solitude, uh, which you could read as a reference perhaps to Octavio Paz's uh, Labyrinth of Solitude, but pinche soledad is the last thing he says. No? So, as I said, some critics have said, you know, this novel is defined by sexual violence, by murder, and renounces Bernal's Christian values or Catholic values in his first novels. Um, but if we follow closely the thread of the Pistolero's subjectivity and consider the multiple references in El Complot Mongol to Christian imagery, um, there's clearly repentance and redemption in the plot of the novel. Garcia abandons, as I said, the role of the Pistolero and becomes a detective. And eventually, uh, he dispenses justice, like other Mexican um, fictional detectives. As in Chandler's movies, um, novels, uh, I don't know why I keep saying movies when I'm talking about, well, in Chandler's novels, and, and Bernal translated some of them, uh, there is no sequence of methodical findings organizing a detection plot, so much as a series of emotionally charged events and, and scenes no? that gradually reveal the truth. So Garcia solves the the, the conspiracy, which turns out to be a conspiracy uh, uh, organized by Mexican politicians. So he brings these two high politicians together, together in the house of one of them, and he has them killed. You know, one of them kills the other, and then he kills the, the, the last one. And then he goes to um, the Chinese uh, area, the Lopez Street, downtown Mexico City, and kills the guy who had killed Martita, no? Who was also involved in the in the in the uh, in the, this supposed plot, no? So, back in his apartment, Garcia, uh, with brings Martita's body. They or he washes his blood-stained hands, and asks a drunken friend to pray to pray for her. So while his friend, uh, licenciado, intones the requiem. Garcia feels the pain caused by the violence. And he says, pinche soledad, which in this context could be, you know, perhaps interpreted as, you know, um, you know Jesus saying, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? This kind of solitude hmm? in front of God, in front of uh, redemption. No? So the role of murderers and detectives, I think, uh, reflects social attitudes toward crime in Mexico, which have been documented in different ways through historical sources. No? So we have ample evidence, as I said, that many people approved of extrajudicial violence in Mexico against suspects. Um, lynching is a practice that we have throughout the 20th century in Mexico, not the lynching that was practiced in the U.S., was mostly ra you know, racially motivated, but lynchings against criminals. Uh, or alleged criminals. Um, we also know, thanks to the research that has been done, that violence was part of, of political life in many levels in Mexico during this period. Uh, many people approve, for example, of the lay fuga, which was uh, a practice by the police, but also the army, in which a prisoner was killed, and then they would say, well, he was trying to escape. But it was really an extrajudicial uh, execution that I found a couple of... Uh, 
instances in the newspapers where uh, editorials and readers say, well, it's good that they apply the lay fuga to these people. You know, why go through the trouble of a trial if we know these guys are, are, um, are guilty? No? Many newspapers, like La Prensa, defended or claimed for the re-establishment of the death penalty hmm? uh, unsuccessfully. Uh, um, you know, and then, in a way, ambiguously, the, ambivalent uh, about the death penalty and the law in general, say, so, well, you know, at least we have the lay fuga, at least we have uh, lynching as a way to uh, uh, obtain justice outside the state. So, literature, in a way, helps us, you know, understand that. And um, for me, it's also helpful in the context of uh, a broader, you know, the, this book that I'm trying to finish about the history of truth and justice as a way to understand how people thought in Mexico at the time that they could find the truth about a crime, what methods, what procedures you had to follow. And it's clear from fiction, from crime fiction, that science didn't provide that path to the truth, um, uh, that the state didn't provide uh, a way to reach, or institutions to reach the truth, uh, that the connection between the truth and justice was always difficult, complicated, hmm? because it didn't go through in, uh, institutions and judiciary uh, procedures. Um, as we see in some fiction, um, there's a, 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 an aesthetic realm that, in a way, uh, redeems murder and restores justice. Hmm? Um, but as we see also in the case of Bernal, this could happen through a kind of religious redemption of the detective. Um, in any case, finding the truth and obtaining justice is something that happens in ways that are critical of the state. Um, so murder, as Oden said, you know, provides pleasure to the reader, but to the Mexican reader, also provides the pleasure of obtaining or reaching the truth and justice without involving the state. Thank you. Thank you.